You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With diplomacy at a standstill and Russian troops now openly in Ukraine, Western governments impose sanctions on Russia. A fresh round of distributed denial-of-service attacks against Ukraine. Cobalt strike continues to be misused by criminals. A cyber attack has severely disrupted a major logistics firm. My conversation with Assistant Director Brian Vordren of the FBI Cyber Division. Our guest, Ed Amoroso from TAG Cyber, explains research as a service and two looks at the recent and prospective state of industrial cybersecurity. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. Diplomacy seems to be at a standstill, at least temporarily. Russia stands more or less alone with full support from Syria and Belarus and some relatively tepid support from China. In general, Russia's President Putin is playing an aggressive role Europe hasn't seen since the 1930s. Reuters reports that Ukraine yesterday renewed its warning that it saw signs of renewed cyber attacks against its banks, its defense sector, and government websites. The warning appears to have been based upon indicators and warnings, and not merely a matter of a priori probability— CERT UA based its assessment on what it observed in dark web chatter. Those attacks have in fact materialized over the last few hours. It's a massive distributed denial of service campaign, and it's said to have hit banks and government websites, particularly sites run by the foreign ministry and the security services. The Telegram says that authorities are working to mitigate their effects. The U.S., U.K., and Australia have attributed recent cyber attacks against such Ukrainian targets to Russia's GRU. The EU's Cyber Rapid Response Team has been activated and will deploy to Ukraine. The move, Politico says, has been welcomed by Kiev. Activation was a joint decision of the six states that contribute to the team. Croatia, Estonia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Poland, and Romania. Speaking of the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Service has upgraded its attack toolkit, replacing the VPN filter malware familiar from earlier attacks with an improved version, the UK's NCSC and the US agencies CISA, NSA, and FBI are calling Cyclops Blink. The four agencies issued a joint advisory warning of Cyclops Blink just a few hours ago, It's a large-scale modular malware framework being used to attack network devices. Cyclops Blink is normally distributed to its victims under the guise of a firmware update. Ukrainian officials say that the most recent round of cyber attacks has been accompanied by a wave of phony bomb scares. The former defense minister of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, one Vladimir Kononov, is said to have been the target of an attempted assassination by bomb, the nominally separatist region announced. TASS asserts that one man, not Mr. Kononov himself, but someone going to meet the former defense minister, was injured in the attempt. 
Germany's refusal to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a move that blocks a substantial increase in Russian sales of natural gas to Europe, was the first and most consequential of the sanctions imposed as the week began. TASS communicated the Kremlin's regret over the decision, quoting spokesman Dmitry Peskov to the effect that this is a purely economic commercial product which is also called to become a stabilizing element for the gas market in Europe further to mutual benefit, and both suppliers and consignees of our gas, in the first instance Germany and other European states, are interested in it. End quote. Other sanctions have aimed to reduce Russian access to global financial and capital markets. The Telegraph reports that Britain has imposed what Prime Minister Johnson describes as the first barrage in its own sanctions program, singling out five banks and three high-net-worth individuals. Prime Minister Johnson said, quote, Any assets they hold in the UK will be frozen. The individuals concerned will be banned from traveling here, and we will prohibit all UK individuals and entities from having any dealings with them. End quote. He signaled that other sanctions are being held in reserve. Quote, this is the first tranche, the first barrage of what we are prepared to do, and we hold further sanctions at readiness to be deployed alongside the United States and the European Union if the situation escalates still further. End quote. The EU has, according to the AP, sanctioned the 351 members of the Duma who voted for recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk, and also 27 other Russian institutions and individuals from the defense and banking sectors. President Putin himself was not among them. And the U.S. introduced further sanctions beyond those already imposed Monday that prohibit U.S. persons from doing business with the two Ukrainian provinces Russia is seeking to detach. The newest measures are designed to punish Russian oligarchs and impede Moscow's ability to sell sovereign debt. Administration officials say they're holding more and more severe sanctions in reserve, but The Telegraph reports critics call the limited measures appeasement. S&P Global records informed speculation that the incremental approach may be at least in part motivated by concerns about economic blowback. After today's round of cyber attacks, Western governments announce their intention to ratchet up sanctions. The U.S. is sanctioning the Nord Stream 2 pipeline's parent company and is considering comprehensive export controls. The U.K. and the E.U. are also preparing to increase their sanctions. Moody's Investors Service has taken a look at the cyber implications of the crisis, which it sees as central to assessing credit quality. Its analysts have concluded that attacks on critical infrastructure are a high risk in terms of consequence, vulnerability, and likelihood. Quote, Critical infrastructure is a likely target of cyber attacks amid ongoing Russia-Ukraine tensions for two reasons. First, the Russian government has a history of launching cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, according to a wide spectrum of cybersecurity experts. And second, these types of attacks are typically more damaging for a country than are attacks on other targets. End quote. The report explains the probable forms such attacks on critical infrastructure might take. Quote, Ukraine has been a testing ground for Russia's cyber capabilities for at least the past decade, with critical infrastructure a frequent target. Critical infrastructure sectors include food and agriculture, 
energy, health care, emergency services, chemicals, dams, financial services, information technology, nuclear reactors, transportation systems, and water and wastewater systems. End quote. The report also sees NotPetya as providing an example of the way in which cyber attack would, in all likelihood, not remain confined to a specific geographical region. In the case of NotPetya, for example, large multinationals became channels through which malware delivered as the payload in a maliciously modified Ukrainian tax preparation software package spread well beyond the initial points of infestation. Not only were the multinationals themselves affected, but their customers were as well. Nor should businesses count on being able to transfer the risk of cyber attack to their insurance carriers. Cyber exclusion clauses are growing increasingly common. Cyber coverage has tended to migrate away from more traditional lines of coverage to cyber-specific policies, which generally offer lower coverage limits. Such policies now commonly have war or hostile action exclusions, and insurance associations have developed and shared model exclusion clauses. Criminals continue to misuse Cobalt Strike. OnLab reports that the tool is being distributed to vulnerable Microsoft SQL servers. Bleeping Computer explains that the legitimate penetration testing software package is attractive to the underworld because of its ready availability and extensive suite of capabilities, hence its widespread misuse. Operations at the major logistics firm Expeditors International have been disrupted by a cyber attack disclosed Sunday, and the Wall Street Journal reports that the company currently still has only a limited ability to conduct operations. There's speculation that the incident was a ransomware attack, but as ZDNet notes, the company won't confirm that. Dragos has released its 2021 ICS Cybersecurity Year in Review. It identifies new threat activity groups with a probable focus on ICS targets, and it also comments on the continuing expansion of the attack surface industrial organizations represent. One problem the report outlines is a widespread lack of visibility organizations have into their own systems. According to the report, 86% of organizations report limited to no visibility of ICS environments. And finally, IBM also sees a growing threat to industrial firms, specifically to those involved in manufacturing. They're particularly vulnerable to supply chain attacks, and they've recently been receiving unwelcome attention from ransomware gangs. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Many organizations find value in getting outside independent insights from researchers and analysts who can gather and synthesize market reports, vendor assessments, industry trends, and so on. Ed Amoroso is CEO of research and advisory firm Tag Cyber and also a professor at NYU. He and his team recently published their 2022 Q1 security report, which focuses on research as a service. Well, most companies rely on uh, research analysts to assist them in uh, understanding vendors and understanding where they come from and how they might fit. Even some of the companies that do it um, perhaps are uh, maybe because of the uh, uh, complexity of cybersecurity or the size of the industry or just the amount of revenue that's being tossed around. It's been our observation that the original goals have sort of gone awry to some degree. So we've been focused on trying to bring enterprise teams back to their roots and, and think through um, selection of vendors in the same way that an engineer would think about the uh, materials and components that go into building a bridge, right? You wouldn't want to drive over a bridge and ask the engineer, hey, how'd you pick those cabling? And they scratch their head and think, you know, not really sure. They were kind of legacy. They were laying around here before, so we figured we'd just <laughs> use them on the bridge. I mean, how many, we laugh at that on a bridge, but how many times would you hear exactly that, um, the, the, the analog to that, made by, say, a CISO at a bank. Why are you using that endpoint tool? You know, it's funny. We had some, I was just here when I got here. I, I don't really know. It's insane. It's not the way to do it. And I will say that with virtualization and cloud, it's much easier to swap things in and out than it used to be. It's very possible now that if you're not happy, for example, with some gateway that you're using, firewalls, if it's running on a virtual platform, you don't have to wait three months for the vendor to ship something. You pull it off the loading dock. You put it in a data center. None of that is applicable anymore. You can very quickly swap images out. So it's a good time for people to get their arms around a more rational means for managing their cybersecurity portfolio. What are you finding in terms of how organizations kind of turn the dials of how much they handle internally and how they coordinate with an outside provider? really depends on the size in the sector. You know, as you go down market to smaller companies, everybody's using applications that sit in a SaaS infrastructure or cloud. It's kind of cool, right? Like you could be a little company. You you and I, Dave, could start a company tomorrow. And it, it, in the afternoon, we'd have our own IT department. We'd get it from Microsoft. We'd have our own payroll system. We'd get it from some payroll SaaS provider. Um, and on and on, you get sort of sales capability from Salesforce or uh, PipeDrive or one of these CRMs. It's amazing. Like you, you really very quickly can build up capability in and around. So for research and for selection of cybersecurity, it's become the same thing where these things can be turned up like utilities and managed service providers are morphing from, say, managing your firewall to something that is more timely. That's why you hear these this designation DR, detection response, like managed detection response, endpoint detection response, or even extended or X detection response. That's really just 
providing a utility-based security capability that would be plug compatible with, with all these SaaS and cloud capabilities that people are doing. So the security becomes more a service utility. Now that's really found everywhere for smaller companies. As you move upstream, it's more a mix, right? If you're a big giant bank or you're a big service provider, like the program I used to run in telecom, you have the ability to mix and match and do things internally, build things in your own data centers. But there's no question that the uh, economics and and sort of the mood, the general trend and tenor of our industry is more and more toward outsourcing things and letting uh, some expert do what they do well. That's that's unmistakable, and it's certainly also true in cybersecurity. What's your advice for organizations to find someone to provide this who's a, who's a good fit? What sort of questions should they be asking? Well, again, it really does matter what sector you're in and how big the organization is. So, for example, in the federal government, you know, as you as you deal into critical infrastructure that have national security or even life. Uh, implications, say, military, then there's specialized um, uh, experts that you want to be working with who understand your domain. Once you get into commercial, then there's a whole host of different research and advisory teams that work. Um, you know, obviously, I'm pretty biased. I think we do a wonderful job, but there's a lot of, a lot of uh, smaller and bigger ones that work. If you're a vendor, then it's um, quite, a, um, qu- quite a decision to make because if you jump in a little too soon with some of the larger research and advisory firms, you could be wasting your money. You know, I'd rather see you hire an engineer than go pay $150,000 to be mentioned in a report. But at some point, the vending community can benefit from um, um, using these types of services. So I would say it really does vary. But if there's one bit of advice, I would say, make sure that you don't waste your money. You know, if you feel like it's a decision whether to hire engineers or, you know, go uh, say get mentioned or, or use advisory services in a marketing capacity, much rather you hire the engineer. I think that's a better, better decision. That's Ed Amoroso from Tag Cyber. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to welcome to the show Brian Vordren. He is the assistant director of the FBI's Cyber Division, Mr. Vordren, it's great to have you here on the CyberWire. Um, I wanted to start off today by uh, just getting a sense for the mission of the cyber division of the FBI, the, the strategies that you have, the your place among the various federal agencies. Can we start there? Thank you for the uh, introduction, Dave. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. 
You know, the FBI has a few uh, unique authorities within the United States government relative to cyber. Certainly, we're the lead federal investigative agency for threat response, which essentially means that when there is a computer intrusion, the FBI would have the lead for any investigative action or to enable intelligence community partners or private sector partners for follow-on action. Uh, Secondly, we have a keen interest in domestic intelligence, and in order to inform that authority, that means that we have to have very good working knowledge of everything going on relative to cyber within the United States. And then that allows us to inform the intelligence community about trends, ongoing threats, uh, but also puts us in a good position to collaborate with our IC partners and very significant private sector partners as well. Third is we obviously have very specific authorities within statute to investigate state actor compromises of U.S. networks, whether those are private networks, academic networks, defense industrial-based networks, and those are important authorities to us as well. Where we fit in with an agency such as CISA is that CISA would be on the, th- the asset response side. They would be responsible for mitigation, for patch management, these types of things about broad vulnerabilities, and to inform the resiliency and net defense side. So we're very much on the investigative, proactive operational side, whereas in comparison, CISA would be on the asset management. We do do a lot of work in our space with the United States Secret Service. They are a very, very good partner of ours. And they have complementary authorities to ours for the U.S. government. Give me a sense for how you all dial in with the limited resources that you have, as, as any you know, uh, government agency does. How do you turn those dials and decide what your priorities are when it comes to the mission for cyber? Sure. We essentially segregate into five key buckets on the operational side. Four of those buckets are the major state actors of Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. And then we have a broad overarching criminal threat that we would know as ransomware, botnets, SIM swapping, these types of threats faced by individuals and companies here in the United States. But in terms of priorities, those are very much um, at the state actor level as well as within the criminal space decisions that are made uh, within the interagency of the intelligence community based on available intelligence, but really guided by which state actors or which criminal groups are having the biggest impact and causing the most disruption and the most loss to organizations here in the United States. So that's a very, very uh, focused answer about how we try to delineate our adversaries and how we try to prioritize against them. And what are the primary ways that people interact with the FBI? I mean, you have the IC3, uh, which is a way for folks to report uh, issues. But what are the major ways that those interactions take place? Sure. We have a few different mechanisms. So first of all, we obviously have a a very decentralized workforce. Um, So we have 56 field offices in the FBI We have hundreds of additional resident agencies that are offshoots of those FBI field offices. So we have the capability to get a cyber-trained FBI agent really to any doorstep in the country here uh, within an hour. That becomes very, very important when a corporation or an organization or an academic institute 
becomes the victim of a cybercrime, we do have great capacity to expand, to, uh, to respond domestically, and to have meaningful conversations with people who have become victims. And I think, you know, while we talk cyber, it is important to remember that the victims behind cyber attacks are still human beings. And I do think the FBI is very, very strong in that space. We also have very proactive outreach efforts that have been sustained for decades at this point. We have relationships with hundreds and probably thousands of organizations throughout this country and even abroad where there is a proactive, ongoing dialogue for exchange of information and intelligence related to cyber. That's a two-way flow of indicators of compromise, TTPs, other malware signatures, just to make sure that we are doing our best to stay in line with the threat and to keep channels of communication open. You know, we always encourage organizations, companies, academic institutions to build that relationship with the FBI before they become a victim of an intrusion. The familiarity of having a personal relationship with someone in the FBI or someone in CISA for that matter So we always make these recommendations and build those relationships now. You had mentioned IC3. IC3 is www.ic3.gov and is the primary intake for internet crimes for the FBI. That would cover online frauds such as romance scams. That would cover business email compromise. And it would cover traditional cyber intrusion reporting. And so that is a very, very key portal. On a weekly basis, that intake portal receives about 20,000 individual leads. So it's a very, very active portal for us. But we also encourage people that it's specifically related to cyber. If they are the victim of a computer intrusion, they should call their local field office immediately to try and get support. All right. Well, Brian Bordren is the Assistant Director of the FBI's Cyber Division. Thank you for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. 
visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.